us, try not to hate us, anticipate us, annihilating the brain trust, finding some dope rhymes to bust. I am Rylan Grant, screenwriter, Ringo award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberin, Banjax, Suicide Jockeys, and now... Fa Shung Origins, the other voice in the dark, the man in the box to the left is... Uh, David Avalone, uh, film guy, comic book writer, and uh, I'm drinking out of a, uh, a 1978 Superman drinking glass. Tremendous fan. If you missed any of our previous episodes, uh, conversations with comic luminaries like David F. Walker, Matt Fraction, Stan Sakai, Kevin Eastman, Rodney Barnes, and many, many more, our entire catalog can be celebrated via YouTube, iTunes, and other purveyors of worthwhile ear crack. I skipped one for a reason. Uh, so double on back and check it all out. Um, we're not actually on that one anymore. I don't know why I keep doing that, but I, 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 I feel the need to say fuck off every time. <laughs> sure. uh, uh, their, their, their name pops into my head. Uh, we have been we have been away for a good while. So I have a feeling that uh, we have a couple of plugs. Um, I know I do. Do you have something to talk about before we bring in our... Uh, uh, nothing that's currently out, though I think uh, when you're reading this on... Uh, when you're watching this on, on Comic Book Day um, on Wednesday, you should go to your local comic book store, pick up the latest issue of Previews World, and point out the many fine David Avalone products that your store owner should order, including the third issue of Elvira in Horrorland, the trade paperback of Elvira meets Vincent Price, and the, I think for now, one-off of Savage Tales, which I have two somewhat Savage Tales in. Just a few things, huh? Mm -hmm. yeah. I, don't, I don't really have anything to plug, but... <laughs> well, I mean, all of those things are months in the, you know, yeah. I'm talking about July. Yeah, 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 but, but yeah, yeah, folks need to go down and order them shits, right? Exactly. Talk pre, to your, pre talk to your local yeah. person. Pre-order, folks. You, you, uh, you that that saves creators it saves comic shops it uh it, it makes uh makes the whole business go so pre-order them shits um uh speaking of pre-orders uh my latest and greatest comic book fit it is a uh a uh a, a wuxia uh kung fu epic called fa Sheng origins um it is a spin-off of a book that charlie stickney wrote for a great company called immortal mortal studios that book is called the adept or the adept uh, depending on uh, where you like to put your uh, um, your emphasis, um, but yeah, it is a, uh, a a historical drama that takes place during the Boxer Rebellion and the uh, the Warlord era that follows. Uh, Wuxia for the uninitiated is um, it is sort of the Chinese martial warrior genre, uh, you know, in the vein of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Um, uh, but uh, so this is a kick-ass action thing. But again, it's um, there's a lot of vegetables with your meat here. Um, you get a historical drama. Um, you learn a lot about uh, 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 history, and um, and this is the first time I've really been able to uh, put my my Buddhist monking to work in a comic book. There've always been shades of it, but um, this actually takes place at the Shaolin Temple. Um, most people know I've talked about it here. Some don't. Uh, one of the um, lesser explored lines of my, my bio is that I'm, I happen to be an ordained Soto Zen Buddhist monk. I can actually uh, trace my lineage back to the Shaolin Temple. Um, so this has been an opportunity for me to uh, uh, take a long look at a kind of a key link in my spiritual chain. Um, but that book is live right now at Kickstarter. If you go to Kickstarter and look up Fa Shung Origins, uh, you can back that 
and uh, it's big and it's bad and it's awesome. The other thing I need to plug is um, uh, before we left, I was uh, talking about on here that I was in the middle of this creators, uh, it, it's called Cards with Comic Creators, this poker tournament uh, with um, comic industry people over at uh, Pop Cult HQ. And um, this should have aired as of yesterday, uh, but I am the season one champion. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I, I won a, an absolute blood uh, match that took about six hours long. Um, and uh, you should head over to popcultHQ.com and, 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 and watch me uh, emerge victorious. So um, excited about that. But I, I've talked too long. Go check that stuff out. But let's bring our guest on. This is a good one. Ladies and gentlemen, Seda Wolf. Hello. Hi. Hi. Seda, tell the kids at home a little bit about yourself. Hi. Yeah. So I'm Seda Wolf. I'm a comic artist and author. I uh, My book is called Soul Stream through Scout Comics. Um, and yeah, I, I spent like two years in high school working on it. And that's the main thing I have done, as you can see behind me, is entirely soul stream. <laughs> love it, love it, love it. My thing and now. I book is the trade is five issues. Is that all there is right now? That is, yeah, that's currently all there is. That's the entirety of what exists. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, that is that is a good healthy trade. Um, but we should be explicit about this right from the beginning because um uh, we would have had you on anyway, uh, because it's a great book and <laughs> with a great publisher, and we would have been excited to talk to you about it. Uh, but what makes it truly exceptional is you are, in fact, uh, still in high school and preparing to go to college, right? Uh, yeah, well, I, I've actually, I've been on a gap year this year, so okay. that I'll have time to go to conventions and stuff. Nice. Um, so it's been, I've, I've been able to have a lot of, like, really great experiences this year, so yeah. I think it's been, Yeah. Yeah, I, when I did was, you, so the the when did you start working on Soulstream? How um, how old were you? How long? I ago? was fifteen years old when I started working on it, um, and then I, I I remember it, it it was like during winter break, which is I think why the story starts in winter like during a winter break um, when sure. I started working on it. But yeah, I I basically I at some point I mapped out what I wanted to make. I just, I, it was a story that I had just really wanted to exist. And it had just been kind of like the pieces of it, I feel like had just been like swirling around in my head for a long time before that. But yeah, I was 15 when I like decided, like, I think I want to make something mm -hmm. that is like this. I was, um, I was shoplifting from 7-Eleven and lighting old action figures on fire when I was 15. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I was making Star Wars fan films there you go. on oh, Super 8 when I was 15. <laughs> yeah, he had to go and show me up there. But. Nothing. To, oh, I was also set. I wasn't shoplifting. <laughs> that was never me. But uh, I'm chaotic good, not chaotic evil. Yeah. But uh, I, uh, I was making Star Wars fan films on Super 8, and I was definitely lighting action figures on fire. Because <laughs> uh, that was, and toy soldiers. I didn't know. Blowing up, I, I built so many model kits when I was a kid, and I think every single one of them was taken out by a, a firework at some, you know, a, an M80 or a, a a firecracker at some point. I like, I built hundreds of models in my childhood, and I, 
I don't know that any of them survived. Uh, certainly, I don't think I have any of them around anymore. Yeah, I, I, I remember taking a GI Joe Cobra Hiss that was this big hollow thing, and you know, I bought I don't know how many packs of fire firecrackers it took, but I would break open the firecrackers and pour the you know pour the gunpowder or whatever oh, it was inside of it. And so, so I filled up the Cobra Hiss. I basically made a pipe bomb out of, uh, out of a Cobra Hiss by emptying out little firecrackers and then just. You know, that was I, Don't do this at home, kids. Yeah, yeah, please. Don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, see, I, sh I should have done the MacGyver thing where you leave out a key uh, ingredient. Yeah, leave out a key ingredient so that the kids at home don't uh, blow yeah. up their. And then, I, I, and then you pour orange juice in the entire thing and it works. Yeah, out, there uh, you go. <laughs> and that's how you make an orange Julius. Not yeah, a lot yeah. of people know that. Wow. Um, now, when you say, like, do you, do you remember when you first came up with a character or a plot line for soul stream like how old were you when you i did mean that? it was it was still when i was 15 i think okay. but i think before then like i had just like some other like smaller projects that they weren't related to soul stream in any way but like when i think back like i think just the things that i learned from the failure of those projects like helped me make soul stream as good as it is it yeah, as good as it is yeah uh -huh. um, and did you always draw when did you start drawing I yeah I think I've I've always drawn I think maybe when I was like when I was like 11 or 12 I think I started to get more serious about it because mm -hmm. um, when I was nine I like my when I was nine I was really into like video games and I wanted to be a game developer and at some point I like I was making a lot of like small games and like those like like coding languages for kids and stuff that you can do like I remember like scratch I was on there all the time um I think at some point that like culminated and when I was in like eighth grade, I made like a larger game and I submitted it to a contest and then I won the contest and then I used that money to get an iPad, which is what I used to make soul stream. So it all like, <laughs> oh, that's wow. wild. That's yeah. really wild. Was yeah. the game, was that game ever released in any way or was it? No, is it it, it's just on my hard drive. It's, it's interesting. You can tell it was made by like a, like an eighth grader um like and i mean not it just has that energy of like that i did when i was in eighth grade and i'm not sure if that's a good or a bad thing but <laughs> it's sure. it's fun to look back on um, when, I, when i was in god seventh or eighth grade i had um uh you know it was old at that point but i had a commodore 64c computer in my house and used to be able to do basic programming on it and i would record um you would record a program to uh, audio cassette tapes. <laughs> we just record sounds onto an audio cassette and then you could play it back and your program would load after about 20 minutes. Um, and it was very basic, but we would do these questionnaires, you know, it's like, you know, do you, you know, do you like Picard? <laughs> if you, if you answered no, then you got stuck in this endless loop. You know, if you answered yes, you got to go on to the next question. Um, you know, very rudimentary. I, uh, 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 but I was not designing games, but I was coding at. Uh, you yeah, know, that's cool though. Wow. I, will, I, I will once again top both of you. And my first computer class yeah. in school, there were no actual computers. We were writing basic programs by hand on a sheet of paper. Oh well. So like, I had a computer class that was notebook, paper, and pens, and you would write one. If then go to like, yeah. 
And we were all told very seriously that if you didn't know basic, you were screwed yeah. in the future, in the, in the flying car and uh, jetpack <laughs> future that was imminent Yeah, that I am here to tell you did not happen. And all of generation X is pretty salty about it Yeah, um, <laughs> that we didn't get uh, this, not, not that we're not using basic. I think we're all kind of relieved that that uh, didn't work out the way we were warned that it would. But, uh, but yeah, no, I think the idea of a tool like an iPad, uh, it's, you know, it's, it, it's a, it's a thing that everybody says, but it's so true that it has never been easier. Yeah. It's still hard to make art. I still can't draw. Give me an iPad. Give me the best iPad in the world. Give me a syntax. Give me all of the best equipment. You'll still get what a friend of mine in college said fourth rate Don Heck, which hurt me deeply, by the way, uh, will be the best that I can do. But um, but it's great that these tools are out there, uh, that people are making their Star Wars fan films on their phone with yeah. CGI and not me scratching laser blasts on celluloid with a pin, you there know, you on film trips <laughs> about yay big, because that was not easy uh, and caused eye strain. Um, but so you're 15. Do you ever look back like what's published now? Page one, panel one. Is that something you drew when you were 15 years old? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, That's that was. Right. Yeah, I know. Well, it's crazy because it's like I look through this book and it's like I look at the beginning and it's like. That's the stuff I made when I was 15. And then as you flip, I just like, as you flip through the book, it's just me aging <laughs> until I'm 17 at the end. And you can see the art looks like it. It's, I don't know if it's apparent to everyone. It's very apparent to me because I made it. Of course. But I can tell very much the, the stylistic differences and the improvement. Sure. Interesting. Over two years. No, that's um, what I was wondering about because everyone. Yeah. You know, the older you get, the less there's acceleration between your ages, you know, compared to 15 and 17, 40 and 50 are less than two years apart. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? 15 to 17, that's a couple of decades, but yeah. 40 to 50, that's like you're barely that different a person. Uh, but a lot can happen when you're, a, when you're a teenager. So how long did it take you? It sounds like it took you two years to do the first five issues. Mm -hmm, yeah. Right. And that was throughout high school and stuff. So I was um, like maintaining my grades and stuff and doing homework. Sure. Um, but I, I think I got pretty good at time management through it all because I, I got all my homework done and then I would go and draw comics yeah. and I, I got it done. It's here. It exists. Yes, you're, I'm very you proud are of shame that. every comic book artist watching this show. You have shamed <laughs> but, them. But yeah. it was. I Everyone who hasn't been able to draw five issues in two years while also not having homework to do, well, uh, you have shamed them. <laughs> but see, I was I was so burned out afterwards, though. Mm -hmm. Like it like I was I, I don't think I was able to work on very much for like six months after it was done. Like I was yeah. real, and I still like I still have a little bit of burnout happening. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard. Um, <laughs> it was very fun, but it was very hard. Sure. Yeah. Have you started working part, on a sixth issue? I've been, I've see, I've been, um, I've been trying to. It's I, I've been trying to get as much done as I can before I go to college. I don't know when it will all be done, 
but I've been trying to work on some more because I know like I've I've met so many kids who have asked me like when is the next one coming out and but the thing is also I just I put so much like I'm I'm so proud of how the first book turned out I really really want the next book to be as good or better than this book and I think because of that I don't want to try to rush out anything because that I this this story was like really important to me especially when the pandemic started and I, I think it deserves to be told like in a way that like I don't know I, I want to do it right mm -hmm. when I when I do finish it um, so it might take a while because of that but I, I really do want it to like maintain that level of quality throughout it so. well sure I mean that and that's you know that's a that's a laudable goal uh and it a lot of people that succeed at something in their teens can get paralyzed by that. I'm sure you've heard about that. And, you, you know, there's a reason why first albums are great. And a lot of second albums, I think it was Elvis Costello who said, you work on your first album for 18 years and your second album for three months. And everybody wonders why your second album is terrible. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because, you know, in that industry, certainly, you know, every song you've ever written in, in your entire life, you pick the eight best ones and they go on that first album. And then the record company says, we need another one of those in six months. And you're like, but I haven't had another 18 years of experiences that have molded me and made me an interesting person. Um, you know, and, and some people do, you know, never look at Harper Lee. Some people never recover from that. And some people do just fine on their second album. And some people just knock out the thing as fast as they can. So it seems, you know, it seems like you're taking the most re reasonable approach to it. Um, you know, Silstream goes to college. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> there you go. As yeah, opposed wow. to Silstream goes Hawaiian or whatever, you know, uh, whatever you might have done. Yeah, I'm going gonna, gonna to go get so many life experiences. I'm going to go, like learn so much stuff and then it's gonna go into that book and it's gonna be great um, yeah. it, that's so. that's you know that's the most beautiful thing and it's an inevitable thing i'm still using stuff not just life experiences but literally stuff i learned in college seeps into my comics all the time but yeah. also the approach to learning mm -hmm. that i got i went to a good school very happy with the education I got. And um, they had a great approach to learning and that has affected my entire life and particularly how I write and, uh, and, and the amount of research and care that I, I put into what I do. And uh, it sounds, and you got into a great school. Where are you, where are you starting in the fall? Um, yeah, I'm going to San Jose state university. I'm, I'm very excited. They have a really great animation program up there. Um, and and is that going to be your focus animation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's my going to be my major. Um, I know at some point in that program you can like pick a specialization. I I don't entirely know what I will. I know one of them is like storyboarding, and that's very interesting to me. Mm -hmm. um, especially because I think a lot of the influences of my comic just were from animation. Like, sure. I think. I think that's one of like the way I approach storytelling a lot of the times is like as if something were animated. So even though it's not animated, I, I feel like I'll be able to learn a lot of good skills from this program um, that can apply to my comics and stuff like that. Well, 
And, you know, the great thing about college and about life in general is you don't have to be right about your choice. Yeah. You like have to, yeah. you know, animation is a great direction for you. But if you decide to do something else, world's full of options to apply yeah. your talent to. Yeah, I mean, it seems like more than anything, you're a storyteller, right? And um, mm -hmm. yeah. it was something. It was something that I had to grip with, you know. I mean, um, I I came out, you know, I came out to to make films, um, and I'm I'm still in that business. Um, but by the time I, I, I live in Los Angeles, so you know, I came out to Los Angeles, went to film school, and by the time I sort of got spit out into the job market, the 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 film business had changed so radically that um i really had to call a lot of audibles you know the uh what happened basically was you know i i got spit out into the workforce and uh at that point you could sell original ideas i i had all these ideas for movies you have an idea for a movie you write a script if it's good you'll sell it i did that for a couple of years but then huge financial crisis hollywood completely remakes the way they do business and then suddenly everything needs to be based on ip it needs to be based on a book or a video game or whatever um, and you couldn't sell an original idea in Hollywood to save your life. Now, if I had just stayed a screenwriter, uh, I would I would have washed out. I would maybe be back in Detroit selling insurance or driving a tow truck or something like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's not for me. Um, but, you know, I had to pivot. You know, it's, after a couple of lean years, I finally got the idea, well, okay, if they want IP, let me give them IP, right? It's like, well, I'm not, I'm not just a screenwriter. I, I am a storyteller. So I can write books, I can write short stories, I can write comics, I can tell a story in, in, in the NFT world, I can, I can do all of these things, you know, uh, these skills are applicable to other arenas, and it's all really the same thing. And there's such a, there used to be walls up between all of these things, and there's not anymore, right? And so if it's comics, if it's animation, if it's whatever, um, you know, you're going and you're getting a storytelling education, right? And, and you're obviously already you're most of the way there already. <laughs> um, you, you know, I mean, I, I think that's what you'll find. And is I, just in my experience, it's like, you'll, you will learn things, of course. Um, a lot of times you get into a program like that. And, um, you know, w uh, let me speak from my experience. I don't, I don't want to speak for you. I, I went to the American Film Institute and it's a great place to, uh, to, you know, it's one of the best places in the world to study directing or cinematography. I was there as a directing fellow and um, and a lot of the instructors are people who wanted to direct films and they tried and they failed <laughs> and, and, and they were very angry about that. And they often made me feel like, and those around me made me feel bad uh, for thinking that I was going to make it right. Um, just because they couldn't. Um, and so I don't know how much I learned from those people. <laughs> right. Um, I almost learned in spite of those people, uh, at some point, but, but what AFI did for me and what, what, you know, I, uh, in, in college, I studied theater and, and film and, and married those things. Um, but it gave me, I was surrounded by people who wanted to do the same thing I did or were similar. They were striving for the same goals. And there was a, there was a camaraderie there, but there was a competition also. It's like, oh, wow, she just wrote something amazing. I got to write something amazing now. Let me, you know, let, let's try to impress each other. Let's try to prop each other up. And um, a lot of the people I met in film school are now people that hire me. And my, my manager, I actually went to film school with <laughs> and all of these things. So it ends up being this like wonderful artistic community, right, that, that you really gain something from. But more than anything, it was like um, 
it was the opportunity to practice. I made so many films. I wrote so many things. And, um, and I feel like you often, there's a cliche where it's like, okay, it's not, it's not the first thing you write that is going to, that's going to sell and, and make you rich and famous. I mean, you're, you're coming from a weird place because the first thing you did got published by Scout Comics. <laughs> so, so that's interesting. But most of us write five or six or 10 or 20 really shitty things before we write that thing that really clicks and we find our voice. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so, you know, it allowed me to get all of the crap out of my system. You know, it allowed me to, um, all of that practice, let me internalize like a three act structure, a five act structure. Right. And so where I used to have to really think about it, okay, well, where are my act turns and blah, 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 blah. Now it's just all loaded onto the hard drive. I don't have to think about it. I, I dream in three acts now, <laughs> you know? Um, uh, uh, so it just comes out of me. And, and, and so it was like, so, so, you know, for those reasons, it was, it was amazing. It was an amazing experience. And then I'm having all these life experiences, right? I'm, I'm living on my own for the first time. I'm falling in love. Um, you know, uh, uh, experiencing loss and, and big highs and big lows and, um, and, and all of that, it gives you something to write about, right. It gives you something to put into those stories. And, um, yeah, I, I, I'm excited. I, you know, uh, uh, the three of us were talking at a con recently and, um, and I believe I spent, I don't know, 10 or 20 minutes telling you how jealous I was of you <laughs> because <laughs> you were about to go to college, which, for anybody is uh, is for various reasons like the best time of your life. It's just uh, um, and and yeah, I was uh, I almost uh, I almost signed up to go with you. <laughs> we, we, you know, we, we we don't we don't have to you know we don't have to act like we know each other or anything. I just want to be at college. So. That's <laughs> like yeah, come with. We're all, let's all go to college. Yeah, let's all go to college. Yeah. I, in the in the '90s, during a particularly lean part of my career, my old college film professor. We were just talking about options and he's like, come, I'm the chairman of the film department. Come back and be a film professor at Bard. And I thought about it for a minute. And then I was like, I'm too old to be stuck in the middle of the woods in winter in upstate New York. I can't, I, I cannot hack it. I cannot do it. But a part of me, the attraction of being back in that kind of environment, it is thrilling. And yeah. I, this is a, a bit of a, a an aside, but it's something that I think about a lot. Uh, you know, you always should be suspicious of there are two kinds of people in the world, constructions, but there are two kinds of people in the world. Uh, people for whom high school is the height of their lives and people for whom college was the height of their lives. And I think it very much determines what you do with the rest of your life and how you structure your work particularly. And I think for people for whom high school was the height of their lives, they like going to an office every day. They like high school warehouses you basically for 40 hours a week and you work under the watchful eye of someone else and then you go home. And when you go home, you are home and you are not interested in what was happening during school. And I think college, the people who love that lifestyle want what freelancers have, which is yeah, I might come into the office maybe once in a week. We'll talk for an hour. Then I'm going to go home and do whatever the hell I want as long as it's done in time by the next – as long as it's done for the next time we have to meet face-to-face, -face, I'm good. And you don't have to watch me every minute of the day. I will get my work done. It's cool. I would rather not have you looking over my shoulder the whole time. 
And I'm not even trying to say there's a better or worse. I know which one I like. Yeah. Uh, some people have to have that structure. And certainly that check that arrives every week, that is a wonderful thing. I only barely understand what that's like. <laughs> you know, like, oh, yeah, every Thursday, huh? Wow, that must be something. Yeah. Uh, I get it when the accounting department remembers to cut me a check. That that would be nice. Sometimes I get bank transfers. That's also nice. But, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, film business, I get paid in lump sums. And, and it, it might be a lot of money, but I'm like, okay, well, does this need to last me two months? Does it need to last me a year and a half? Or the rest I, of my life. Yeah, I, <laughs> That's I, the, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah. So I'm going to be very careful. Yeah. Um, One thing we haven't covered and I'm curious about is how does, at what point in the process, i.e. how many issues were done, and at what time does Scout enter the picture? Um, How does this get in front of our friend, Charlie Stickney? Yeah, so actually uh, it was, I basically, I had started drawing issue one. Like I I had eight pages of issue one done and my parents were encouraging me to try submitting it to like a comic book company just to like see what they say basically. Um, And I, I guess the idea was that like I could maybe like learn some stuff from either a rejection or from whatever happened. And so I sent in the first eight pages, which was all that was done at the time um, to Scout Comics along with like like a letter and like synopsis and like all the stuff they require. And they wrote back to me like a couple of days later and they said they wanted to publish it. Uh, and that was unbelievably exciting. I did not expect that. Um, but then I ended up spending the next two years finishing it. Uh, so that was really exciting. So yeah, Scout came in pretty early in the like creation of this book. Um, and they were really helpful with a lot of stuff. Like I know uh, at one point I found out that CMYK formatting was a thing and they were very helpful throughout all that. Um, I know, yeah, there's, because I, I mean, I've, I've never done anything like this before. So there were some things that I like needed some help with and they were really helpful and great with everything. So I really appreciate everything they've done to help get this book out there. So you, so you, you literally did everything. You prepped for, uh, for printing, for, for production. You, yeah. you did all the, that's, that's I did a, all you, the yeah, things. You were a, you were a one woman band. Uh, uh, <laughs> all, or, I mean, yeah, how yeah, involved were they were the, on the creative end? Did you get editorial notes or did they just let you completely free with it? Um, I mean, I, I had an editor, I had, uh, Wayne Hall. He mm-hmm. like looked over, it was mostly like, I, I got just some notes on like, uh, like grammar and stuff, but I mostly had, yeah, I basically had creative control over almost every aspect of the book. I think the only page in here that I did not like directly design is just this front one that has like all the credits in it. <laughs> and then every single other page I, I designed myself and I, and I'm, I'm very proud of that too. Cause it was, and it's nice. Cause like I was able to have like control over what it all looks like like i was able to like it's all just exactly and even i think this this back cover i think they put the barcode on it but i i designed all That's this amazing. stuff there too mm-hmm. yeah. and they must have you know and they must have been thrilled by that <laughs> one of my first gigs i was writing something for a game company and the contract among other things 
called for me to provide back cover copy and descriptions of up to a minimum of 10 and a maximum of 25 illustrations. Just describe them. It was a prose oh, book, not a, uh, not a comic yeah. book. And when I handed in my manuscript, I handed in 20 descriptions of illustrations and back cover copy. And the editor wrote me and said, no one has ever done that. And I said, <laughs> it's in the contract. He said, no one reads the contract. <laughs> And no one has ever given us the descriptions of the illustrations or the back cover copy. And they use it all. I mean, in the illustration, it was the first time I described something and then someone went out and drew it. And it was very gratifying to me. But it's just a funny thing talking about school. How many, even doing the job of your dreams, the number of people who will not do their homework, <laughs> not do the simplest and most gratifying part of their homework is always just a little bit funny. And that was my first lesson in that, is in just an editor saying, yeah, no writer has ever actually read the contract and done all this stuff in the contract. And I'm like, why would you? So they just let you guys choose the illustrations and write the back cover copy. And he's like, oh yeah, no one wants to do that stuff. I'm like, I absolutely don't want you in control of that stuff. So I'm, I'm glad that I did that. And you know, when you start out in comics, you know, you started with a creator-owned thing. I started writing, I think my first gig was uh, Legendary Vampirella. It was a while before I even had input on covers, you know. And I had a, and I had a lot of creative control in those books, but it took a while for me to go, hey, can I tell you guys what I think the cover should look like? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that, I, I think I should maybe have some input on that. Um, and, you know, the covers I got were always great, but some of them were like, I am baffled by what that has to do with what I wrote, but okay, cool. It's a cool image. I doesn't describe anything that happens in the comic, but that's, that's awesome. Um, but that's cool. So, and it was never floppies, right? The goal was always this five chapter book. Yeah. The, the goal was always this five chapter book. I know they, they released like floppies of issue one. Um, but yeah, there aren't floppies of any of the other issues. I have a lot of covers actually. <laughs> Um, a lot of variant covers. Um, and then I have this book. But yeah, it's the, the goal has always been uh, to, the, to get to the trade paperback. I think it's like that with all the other titles under their Scoot imprint too, where sure. they, release, they release one issue and then it jumps straight to the trade paperback. Um, and I think the goal there too is to basically put out these floppies at very low prices um, so that parents can buy them for their kids more easily. And then... Uh, if kids like that, then they can go and they can buy these books. Yeah. Um, or they can like find them at libraries and stuff. And because of uh, the Simon and Schuster deal, all of the stuff is a lot more accessible, which is really great for stuff like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, yeah. the, the the monthly comic book buying thing is definitely not a in the twenty first century. It is not a habit that children have. Yeah, you know, it is not a it is an it is an older person's habit, definitely. Uh, and and I think it's one of the real challenges in the industry, honestly. But I think Scoot's doing a smart thing by setting it up with a floppy so that down the road when they grow up, maybe they'll they'll be a little more open to the idea of buying a floppy and then buying another one and then buying another one. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's kind of funny to lock into stone the sort of trade weight uh culture 
because I, I will do that too, uh, particularly for projects where I don't, sometimes, you know, uh, you, you have a comic that's on the stands and you go, this thing is on the bubble. And if I don't buy every floppy, this thing will never see the light of day again and it'll die. But when something is immensely popular, I'm like, you know, I'll read the first issue and that'll convince me to buy the trade in six months or not. Uh, and I don't need to buy, I don't need to pick up all the issues. That's fine. Um, but it's, like I said, it's an interesting uh, model for Scoot to do, particularly aimed at small, at, at youngins. Um, yeah. What was, what, what did they, uh, I'm looking to see if it says, is there a, is there an age recommendation on uh soul stream I, I i mean it's it's all ages so i don't yeah. and i don't think it has like like any like like age stuff on there it's it's basically like it's it's basically marketed as all ages but i have yeah. found that um just from like going to these conventions and like having book signings like it it seems like my book is incredibly popular with nine-year-old girls i have found apparent that's that's not like that wasn't I mean, of course, I, I want all kinds of people to be able to enjoy my book, but it's, it turns out nine-year-old girls really, really like my book. Right. I've met a lot of nine-year-old girls. That's, I mean, that's <laughs> a beautiful thing. I mean, and knowing yeah. who your audience is, and especially, know. you know, you started writing it when you were 15. That makes a certain amount of sense. Mine has a very nice sketch in it. Oh, wow. Done, by, done by the author. No, and I, I think it's, it's an interesting thing as a, as a comic book creator to have a sense of who the audience is and who really digs it. Um, I've said this before, but when I started writing Betty Page and Elvira in both cases, I had a concern, not even a mild one, that it was going to be creepy old dudes buying comics about hot young ladies. And uh, it concerned me a lot. And I would go on Instagram and when I have a new issue out, I put in the, Hashtag Betty Page, hashtag Elvira. It's, as far as I can tell, my core audience is women between the ages of 15 and 25. Oh, wow. Um, and the amount of them that are reading the Betty Page that have straight black bangs across their forehead, nice. you know, and the, and the, you know, and the women who read Elvira, the young women who read Elvira, you know, have the spider tattoo on the, <laughs> on the neck and the, you know, the, full-on goth look and it's like and it honestly is the reason i kept writing those characters oh my gosh that's went, awesome wow that's who should like this book if those people hate this book it's the wrong book yeah but if teenage girls with black bangs are are digging betty page then i have hit the correct note wow. uh and i am portraying the character properly and same thing with elvira if it's you know if it's a bunch of uh, little Wednesday Adams is out there reading it, then the Elvira <laughs> book is a is a big success. Yeah, it was a it was a huge deal with Aberrant. You know, uh, Aberrant is about. Uh, I mean, it starts out. It's about a, a a special forces team. It's about military men, and and I I grew up in a a military household. You know, my dad was in the army, and uh, all my uncles, and um, and I almost went to the naval academy, and and all of these things, and so I I knew those guys. And I knew how important it was to get those guys right. And so I went out of my way and I was hard on the artists. Like this insignia is wrong. Like uh, he wouldn't stand this way. He wouldn't hold the weapon that way. The flags backwards, all of these things. Um, and I really went to, you know, to, to extreme measures almost to really nail that stuff. Um, but it's so awesome when you're at a convention 
and somebody pulls you aside and he's like, Hey, I, I, I served in Afghanistan for, you know, uh, two tours and you, you got us right. And, and you paid tribute to us and thank you for that. And, um, you know, I've been wrestling with this and wrestling with that. And, you know, the book is really about a man who's dealing with loss and PTSD and all of these things. And he was like, you know, uh, I've been wrestling with the same things and, and this helped me get through that. And um, yeah, that's, that's, it's, it's really, it's awesome when you hit the right people and when they come and tell you, you know, like uh, you doing this meant something to me, right. Um, one way or another. Yeah. And I think, you know, a nine-year-old, I can not speak for having been a nine-year-old girl and <laughs> never was one, but I can imagine easily that a, your book is, aspirational for a nine-year-old girl it's you know this is the this is a world they want to live in this is a character they want to be well you know, it, it, I, yeah, it, no go ahead Ryan. i was just gonna say i, I mean I, I have a five-year-old daughter right and um and 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 she's you know in the last year or so she's become a full whole person you know and she's falling in love with stories and tv and books and the whole nine yards and it is so formative you know and i i um you know, I, 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 I mean, I'm fond of saying that I, I think you could, you, you only stand about, you can only understand about half of life and, until you become a parent, then, then you see this whole other side of it that you didn't even know existed. And you understand yourself and how you came along much better. You understand your parents a lot better because uh, you, you didn't understand their perspective at all. Um, and so I watch her as a five-year-old and I can see myself as a five-year-old and I can see how what I consumed back then made me who I am now, right? Uh, the building blocks of me. And um, it's funny that she's she's watching a lot of the same stuff. She's reading a lot of the same stuff. And then there's, there's other new stuff that's new and amazing and all this stuff. And I'm sure she'll read this book and love it. Uh, <laughs> Maybe not for another four years, unfortunately, but uh, but 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 we'll see. <laughs> um, um, uh, but um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 I mean, it's kind of cool, you know. I mean, it's cool that um, uh, I mean, this stuff gets loaded onto your hard drive when, when you're dealing with people that young. I mean, I I feel like the the forty five year old army vet that I hit, it means something to them, right? And 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 it gives them it gives them a a a whatever 15 minutes of entertainment while they're flipping through it. It, uh, it gives them the feeling that, Oh, wow. Somebody's going through the same thing I did. You know, somebody understands me. Uh, there's that. And that's, that's very important. Um, when you have a nine-year-old girl or boy or whatever reading this thing, it, it gets loaded onto their hard drive. It becomes part of their operating system. You know, it's, uh, um, um, I am, I am still acting on, you know, I, my parents, they didn't do a ton for me when I was growing up. I was raised by the television. I was raised by books. Uh, uh, I learned right and wrong from Captain Picard. Um, <laughs> a sense of honor, a sense of duty. You know, uh, watching watching fucking Star Trek. Um, and I am I am still executing those plays. Um, and I feel like it's such a powerful and interesting position to be in, and it's such a, a grand responsibility. I think when you're writing for that audience, um, and I and I think you've handled it, you know, very very well and very skillfully. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I I know definitely, like, this story is definitely something that I would have loved when I was younger, and I still love it now. <laughs> um, but I think that was a big motivation for me, like, in making it, just because when I was younger, I, like, struggled to find stories that, like, were like this, basically. Um, and especially, like, getting into comics, like, 
I was interested in comics, but for a long time, it was hard for me to get into it just because like, like, where do you start with stuff like that? Like, first of all, like stuff that's appropriate for that age, but also just like with like how much continuity there is in so oh, yeah. many comics. Like, I just didn't know where to start. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at some point, I, I did get into comics and I love comics, but it took me it, it was hard at first when I was like a, like a little kid. Um, so I hope that my book can be something that like kids can pick up and they can just really enjoy that. And I, cause I know it's something that if I had found it when I was like nine or 10, like it would have been my like absolute favorite thing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. And it's, it's great to know that you can do that for other people. I, you know, the thing about continuity, it's been such a anchor around the neck, particularly the big two. And I think they're just starting to learn the lesson of figuring out that comics needs on ramps. You know, when I was a kid, the first superhero comic I ever read, I still remember it. It was a really good comic. It was when uh, Iron Man and Captain America shared a title called Tales of Suspense. I think it was number 68. Iron Man fights Titanium Man and Captain America infiltrates Grayskull Castle during World War II. Grayskull? Could it really have been Grayskull? No, that's He-Man. No, that's He-Man. <laughs> like that. <laughs> title very much like that. But the point is, it, even then, it was too big a hill to climb for me to find the next issues and ever find out what happened with Iron Man and Titanium Man. Yeah, there's Castle Grayskull. <laughs> Yeah, this, this is great. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm, saying. I'm showing Castle Grayskull to everybody. Go but, uh, point being that, you know, even how many years ago was that? It's, I, it's still, even 40 years of continuity ago, I went, oh, this is, this is a lot. <laughs> like, I have to, what do I have to know about Iron Man? What do I have to know about? Yeah. Captain America, who's Baron Strucker? What's Titanium Man? Like, it's still a lot. And they, they, uh, it, you still have people who want that ridiculous 60 years of continuity, who want to believe that the Fantastic Four today, who somehow haven't aged in 50 years, are the same people that got on the rocket in 1961. It's like, come on, man, let go of that. Just let go of that. You kind of, just re it's okay to keep redoing it and starting from the beginning and you know new characters would also be nice every now and again i, I yeah i what, what struck me about what you just said is um is that you've already learned a very important and valuable lesson and maybe the most important and most valuable lesson is write what you want to see you know uh there will be a lot of pressure as you progress in your career to write at something oh this will be commercial this will be a hit uh uh Everybody, oh, time travel's big now. Let me do a time travel story. Um, you, you start chasing trends and fads and, and trying to end up in the right place. The problem is by the time you get there, you know, the, the, the lines <laughs> moved already. It's like, well, eh, you know, um, everybody was writing time travel stuff. There are a million time travel stuff. Nobody wants time travel stuff anymore. They want whatever, you know, new dimension stuff, whatever. Um, but if you always just do what you want to see. And um, I mean, you said something very, you said it very eloquently, like, well, when I was nine, this is exactly what I would want. 
and you know, and you know that better than anyone. I, I have no idea what a nine-year-old girl uh, 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 <laughs> wants to read. And a lot of the people that are writing stuff for nine-year-old girls look like me. <laughs> and that's why, that's why very little of it is very good. You know, um, yeah. uh, uh, you know, you're, you were nine not too long ago, you know, uh, and, and, but you're also, um, you know, more intelligent and more worldly and, uh, and ahead of your, your years in a lot of ways. So you, you can look back and, and, and you can, um, you know, you could very, you could take it apart and put it back together. Oh, wow. Yeah. This is exactly what I would want. And this is how I should write it. And this is how I should, should speak to a nine-year-old girl or boy who's reading this and all of that stuff. And so I, I think that's, if you keep doing that, um, that's a tremendous formula for success, you know? Um, however, just, just, just be aware the business will try and steer you otherwise. And you may have agents and managers uh, later who will try and steer you otherwise um, and, and, you know, if I can give you one piece of unsolicited advice, uh, just listen to that voice inside your head and don't listen yeah. to any of that other nonsense and, and, and you'll do very well. Because well, so, yeah. so many times when they point you at what they think is the brass ring, the brass ring is moving and they have no idea where it is. And they're yeah. just guessing. They're all just guessing. You know, there's the famous the market research that 20th century Fox did when they had star Wars in the can, but not released yet. And they, they found out, uh, they, they did a poll to find out if people wanted to see a movie about a princess. People did not want to see a movie about a princess. Is that really a good description of star Wars? That it's a movie about a princess? Like, is that really how you're selling star Wars? Oh, it's about a princess, you know, and one Fox executive, the note I always remember is a note from the Fox executive. Why is the dog flying the plane? <laughs> Which I've always loved. That's so good. Always, it's a look. It's a valid question. Why is the dog flying? Why is the dog the flying? Dog the plane? is excellent because he's a good boy. That is why the dog is flying the plane. But you know, it also reminds me. You, uh, you should know. I mean, part of me is like, don't don't write for nine year old girls when you're not a nine year old girl, but. You know, it's it's too much to say that people shouldn't write things that aren't exactly them. We're writers. We have imaginations. If you wanted to write a comic about a middle-aged man, I would read it. I'm, I'm sure it's <laughs> great. But there's also, like, know what your resources are and do your research. There's a story that I've always loved about um, Claire Danes when she was starring on My So-Called Life. The showrunner, I think this would have been Ed Zwick, like would have her come by the office once a week, just, you know, tell me what's going on in your life. Tell me about boys you're dating, whatever. And she thought it was like, oh, we're friends and he's going to ask me things. And then she would get a script and like everything I said in the office is in this script. And it's like, yeah, he's not a 15 year old girl. Of course he should ask the closest 50. He's got a 15 year old girl lying around. He can ask questions. <laughs> of course he should have you in his office and say, so uh, tell me a little bit about that boy you're dating. Oh, that's gold. That's going in a script. You know, like, you know, of course, of course you would do that. It's the foolish, you know, a friend of mine, and I won't name names, uh, worked on a show where she was pretty much the only black actor. And it was entirely a white writing staff. And she would very gently tell them, uh, not really this is a thing that anyone would ever say or do. And they didn't listen to her. Uh, and it was very painful for her to 
play the part that way. And she did it and she did okay. And, you know, she went on to bigger and better things that didn't involve writers not listening to her perspective. But it's like, my God, listen to the person that you have in your life, that you have on your show, when they say this doesn't make any sense and I am literally this person, you know, uh, it's it's smart to take that advice and to do that research and to, and you know, my father would have said the same thing. It, writing is listening. You know, it, you can write anything if you're, if you, if you have eyes open and are willing to listen. And if you're stuck in the echo chamber of your own thoughts, you only end up creating movies about movies and books about books and comics about comic books. Mm -hmm. You're only just echoing back at the page everything that the page has fed to you and not letting the world influence you. You know, when I think about earlier stages in my career that I've done things that were definitely not writing, um, those things were incredibly formative and incredibly helpful and gave me a greater breadth of experience than some people who I, I, I could point to as more uh, successful in the most broad sense of the word, who never had to struggle, who never had to do anything, you know, other than the job they have now. It's like, I'm, I'm kind of glad I worked in a factory for a little bit. <laughs> you know, yeah. I feel less stupid writing a factory worker than I might if I had never, ever stood on a floor like that. So, uh, not to say that everybody has to work in a factory, but it's at least at least listen to the factory worker when you overhear his conversation <laughs> at your local or diner, man, because that is the gold. I mean, what what would Bruce Springsteen write about if he had never worked in a factory? Right. You know, it's like it'd be a lot of songs about being a millionaire shooting his television. Yeah, we, would, we would not have a, I wrote this song about a factory where they make factories. Yeah. <laughs> can't be underestimated and it's and you know it's a great thing that you're taking a minute and going to college and getting an education and that you haven't set yourself you haven't called scout and said okay soul stream number six coming in a month you know? <laughs> it's like no let yourself live and you're you know it may seem like a strange thing to say but your characters will thank you for it yeah you know? yeah I, absolutely i i think i I do need a lot more like life experiences before I, cause I mean, cause a lot of like stuff just in the first book, like a lot of it was like writing what I knew and just mm -hmm. my experiences like in high school from that point. But, and I've been going to like all these conventions and doing all this stuff, but I have not been in school for a, like over a year. Like, has it been? No, it hasn't been over a year. It's been almost a year. Yeah. And yeah. I feel like I, I really do. I, I want to go to college and I want to like have a bunch of different life experiences and I want to meet new people and take GE classes that teach me things that are not art that yeah. will help me get more stuff in my brain that can make my my stories better. And I just, yeah, I I want to go out and get more experiences in the world while I'm at college and I'm excited. You know, when, when I went to college, I thought because of the things I was interested in that aside from film, 
most of what I would study would be literature. Turned out I wasn't that interested in literature classes. I can read just fine without anyone telling me to read books. Uh, but I took a, I took a require, we had, you were required to take two science or math courses. And when I took the first required science course, there was a history of science course. And the professor was a brilliant and fascinating guy. And I ended up taking six courses with him over four years, way more than literature. <laughs> I took science, I took physics and epistemology and history of science and cosmology classes that I would have never imagined I was going to take because it just came along and interested me. Yeah. And oh my God, has that stuff echoed through the entire rest of my life and my work. Yeah. Uh, more than anything I would have learned in lit class, I think. Rereading books I had read or, you know, it's like, yeah, you want can we, do you want to talk about Shakespeare for 16 hours next month, next summer? <laughs> I could do that, but I did that in high school a little bit. What, what else can I do? You know, and that's the that's the adventure that's waiting for you that we guys like me and Ryland are jealous of. Is yeah. You, don't, you well, don't know what you're going to encounter. Well, yeah. You don't know what course you're going to be forced to take where yeah. you're going to go. Apparently, I am fascinated <laughs> by quasars. Who knew? Well, you know, yeah. like, well, here's the thing is the journey never stops. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I mean, the, exactly. the, you know, the only reason I'm still doing what I'm doing after 16 years of doing it is because I have taken that very seriously. We live in a world of, of Googlers. You know, it's like, oh, well, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to write about, I'm going to write about a sheet metal factory, but I'm going to Google uh, uh, what it's like, what sheet metal factories are, are, are like. And, you know, that's, it, that becomes one dimensional, at best two dimensional BS, right? Um, if you want to know what it's like to work at a sheet metal factory, you go to a sheet metal factory. You know, you, you talk, to, you, you spend a couple of days with the guys who work at the sheet metal factory. You take a turn on the lathe, you know, you, uh, you do all this stuff. And, and, and that, that's how I have survived. Um, this, uh, one of the scripts that really broke me in Hollywood it was a script called uh, The Ghost and the Wolf that was about a Russian-Armenian gang war in Los Angeles. And I wasn't going to learn the ins and outs of, of Armenian, uh, Los Angeles-based Armenian gang politics by Googling, right? I, I had to go and meet these people. And so I, I, I knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody, and I was introduced into this world. And I hung out with, um, you know, Armenian contraband dealers and, uh, and, and uh, you know, Russian bootleggers. And, and I, 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 I drank with them and I ate in restaurants with them. And I, and I watched how they walked and how they talked and how they interacted. And I grabbed a piece from here and a piece from there. And all of that ended up in the script, right? And, and that was the feedback that I got over and over and over again is like we can this this script is alive you know like we, i can put a white glove on and i can feel the dust on the tables because you know because <laughs> because this is real like you live this like to a degree you know i was not a russian armenian gangster but 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 again um and that has just been the thing over and over again like i i've had to write a lot of cops in my day and so you know ride-alongs uh, I went. I went down to Santa Monica, and I took the uh, the um, month long citizen police force course, um, and so spent a lot of time <laughs> interacting with cops, right? Um, and that that's the only reason that I can write them convincingly. And 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 then at the same time, I make contacts where it's like if I have if I have a question, I know of people I can call. I can you know I can call Officer Goodman and say like, hey, here's the thing: routine traffic stop, and this happens. What what, what would you do procedurally? 
they can fire back an email and then I've got it. Right. Um, uh, I was writing about a, uh, uh, a bounty hunter, a, a bail enforcement agent. Um, and so I, I went and enrolled in classes and, uh, you have to be licensed to do it in the state of California, but I took a couple of months of classes where I got all of my pre prerequisites out of the way to become a licensed bail enforcement agent. Um, and so really all I would have had to do was take the test and pay the, the licensing fees and all of that stuff. And I could have, uh, worked professionally as a bail enforcement agent in Los Angeles. And, um, and it never stops, you know, um, uh, uh, just because you don't know something doesn't mean that you can't know something, you know, after a little bit of work tomorrow or a month down the road or whatever. Um, I just think that's important. I don't think enough people do it. Sure. Well, and, uh, you know, another thing to remember, you know, and this is a little bit of a side note on research, but I learned when I got obsessed with history that if you read one history book, you know, almost nothing about a subject you kind of got to read three or four that don't agree with each other and figure out who's telling you the truth and who's not telling you the truth. The, the professor that I was mentoring mentioning before, his name was Peter Skiff. He had the, uh, he had the great like 1950s sci-fi movie, NASA scientist voice. He was nine feet tall. looked like John Cleese in a beard and his glasses. I don't remember ever seeing his eyes. They just like reflected white light back out because of fluorescence, but he was always like, uh, I remember he was the first teacher in whatever, you know, 12, 14 years of schooling that assigned a book and we came in the next day and he went, well, what did you, what did you think about that? And we all like vomited up what the book had said. And he said, really, I think that guy's nuts. His premise is nonsense. You didn't, no one, none of you thought that was crazy talk at all, what he was saying. And we were all like, you're the teacher and you assigned the book. So it all must be true. Right. And he's like, never, he was the person who taught me everyone who writes a book, the best person in the world, the most honest person in the world who writes a book is still selling you something and they will leave stuff out and they will put stuff in based on what they want you to feel when they walk away. Even the most honest person in the world will do that. And it is your job as a thinking adult person to read books and go, I wonder why he's telling me this. I wonder what he's leaving out or she or they. Yeah. And uh, boy, did that change how I experience things. And as an example, I'm writing a comic right now where the main character is in rehab. I have never been in rehab. I wanted to get it right. I talked to about a half dozen people who had been in rehab and a half dozen people who had worked in rehabs. None of their stories agreed with one another. There were people who told me, Oh, no, no, you'd never be in for less than 60 days. And people say, oh, no, you'd never be in for over 28 days. They'd toss you out after that. Oh, you, yeah, they'd put you in a room with a, a paranoid schizophrenic who's off his meds. Oh, no, we keep the drug addicts and the paranoid schizophrenics completely separated. No one had the same story. And that in and of itself is a thing to learn. Mm -hmm. That all rehab is different. And that everybody who's in it thinks that the thing they're experiencing is probably the way everybody does it which is a very common thing. But that's why if I had talked to just one person, I would have written something that a whole bunch of people would have gone. There's a lot of conclusions he's making about rehab here that are crazy. I know nothing like I experienced. Now I know that there will definitely, no matter what I write, someone's going to say, that's not how rehab works. 
<laughs> well, not the one that you worked at and not the one that you went to, but I know this is possible. I know this is possible. I know this is everything that I'm putting in this story happened to at least one of the people that I talked to. And I made sure of that. There's no sci-fi in here. There's no fantasy. I'm not breaking any laws, but that's the challenge. The world is full of people who would have talked to one source and gone, okay, great. I know everything there is to know about eat rehab. You know, even I'm the story I'm writing takes place in New York. I talked to people who were in a variety of States. I made sure I talked to at least one person who worked in New York so that the laws would be correct and all of that. But anyway, all that to say, it's like, if you're not, a writer has to be curious above all about the rest of the world and about almost anything. I got assigned, someone asked me to write an Alan Quartermain story, an eight page Alan Quartermain story a month or two ago. And my first thought was, oh, Alan Quartermain, that'll be fun. And the other, my next thought was, I know nothing about turn of the century South Africa. Am I really willing to spend like a week learning about turn of the century South Africa so that I can feel good about writing eight pages <laughs> of Alan Quartermain? And I definitely went out and learned more than I needed to know. I talked to a friend of mine who lives there. I, I found some people in South Africa that had interesting perspectives. I read accounts from the time and stuff like that. It was definitely more homework. When I got to write the story, I was like, oh, almost none of this uh, actually applies to what I'm writing. But at least, but I didn't have that feeling of showing up for the test having not done my homework. Mm -hmm. I actually had showed had the feeling of showing up for the test going, oh, I, I, I'm going to ace this. I don't even need all that stuff that I studied last night before I got to my homework. And... I don't know about anyone else. I get uncomfortable when I approach my homework, my test, and I don't feel like I know everything that I need to know. Federico Fellini, one of the you know world's greatest filmmakers, as you might imagine, was constantly, he worked only in Italy on films in the Italian language, and he was frequently courted by Hollywood. And I remember he said once, I don't know the difference between how a cab driver in New York and a housewife in Duluth think. I don't know anything about what makes those two completely different people. I should not ever make a film in America because I have no idea what Americans think or do or feel. He said, I don't know what a New York City cop has for breakfast. So how can I make a movie that takes place in New York City? And I think, you know, he was being extreme but if you, you see a lot of times when that happens, when the foreign director becomes big, I remember there was a great uh, New Zealand film called Once Were Warriors. And the director of that made a big Hollywood film next. And I went to see it with a friend of mine who's actually a film director now herself. And she said, this is a foreigner making a movie about 1950s America. This is going to be about hats and the grills of large automobiles and he is going to understand not one other thing about american culture is going to make sense in this movie and she's absolutely right it's just all here's the pretty stuff from movies about the 50s that i liked in movies when i saw them and everything else about it was bizarrely and horribly fraudulent and uh, i always remember that lesson you know so it's uh not to get off on a huge tangent about that as i often do but it's 
to me, it's the joy of the job. And it's why we're talking about this is going to college is learn all the things, experience all of the things, you know, that's the, that's the best part about it to me, you know, and that's all lying ahead of you right now. When do yeah, you it's, everything is, it's, it's crazy. Cause I, I mean, I'm going to be there for a lot of years and I'm still pretty young. So that's like a pretty big chunk of my like relative lifespan. Yep. <laughs> it's going to be wild. Um, yeah. And you head up there in September? Uh, like August, I think. Okay. Yeah. Like mid-August. Cool. I am excited. It's, it's you be should fun. be. And we are, we are excited for you. Well, thank you. <laughs> and you know, and this, the stuff that you, the person you're going to be in four and a half years is going to be a very different person. And we look forward to what she creates as well. <laughs> oh, thank you. You know, well, anyway, we should wrap up. Uh, we usually end with saying, where can people find you? Are you, where are you on the internet that people I can am, find you and find your I book? I am um, on various social medias. I think all the social medias. Um, I, I have accounts like under just at Seda Wolf. I also have at Soulstream Comic pages on like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And then you can find my book. Yeah, you can find my book on the Scout Comics website. You can find it on... <laughs> you can find it on a lot of online platforms that sell books like Barnes and Noble and other things through Simon and Schuster libraries have it it's it's digital <laughs> places yeah that yeah. <laughs> it's I feel like, sorry like for the radio audience because uh yeah Ryland and I just did a lot of interpretive dance with copies of Soulstream uh that you, you did it was well done you didn't get the uh, I, I, yeah. If you're listening I, I, on iTunes, yeah. please go over to YouTube and find this yeah. uh, video and watch the last five yeah. minutes. Uh, so, Ryland, where can yeah, you? Yeah. you? I'm up. I, I was about to lament that I didn't have the uh, the CGC uh, 9.8 uh, graded uh, copy of Soulstream. I just have my <laughs> normal uh, loose floppy there. But um, I am at Ryland Grant on all forms of social media. That is R Y L E N D G R A N T. I always spell it because it's not a real name. My parents just drunkenly arranged letters and settled me with it. And so now I have to spell it for you. Um, but yeah, uh, um, you know, Banjax and Aberrant and Suicide Jockeys, uh, all the uh, comic shop fun uh, available and fine comic shops everywhere and via Amazon and, uh, and Barnes and Noble and all of those fun places. Um, you can still grab my uh, my Kickstarter books, the um, uh, Fargo West Crime Drama, The Peacekeepers, and the Astral Projection Thriller, The Jump, uh, via my backer kit. If you go to thejump2.backerkit.com, that's the jump one word and the number two, thejump2.backerkit.com, you'll find those there, as well as signed copies of Aberrant and Banjax and all that good stuff, and Rare Con Variants. It's a one-stop Ryland Grant shop. But uh, most importantly, um, Fa Sheng Origins, my latest and greatest, my Wuxia Kung Fu epic, is available right now via Kickstarter um, from Immortal Studios. So if you go on to Kickstarter, uh, search Fa Sheng Origins, search Immortal Studios, uh, any of those things, you will find it. It is kick-ass. You're going to love it. Um, and watch me, um, watch me kick-ass and take names on uh, Cards with Comic Creators over at PopCultHQ.com. 
Very nice. Um, I, I started the show with all of the things that are available in July, but May 22nd, Elvira in Horrorland number one drops. Um, the premise of the series is that Elvira gets lost in the little pocket dimensions that are created by all movies. You knew that, right? All movies create their own little parallel sure. universes. And uh, in the first one, she deals with, let us say, a psycho motel owner. In the second one, which is titled She's a Kubrick House, she deals with maybe a haunted hotel and a crazy overactor with a, a an axe. Um, in the third issue, we take on the Aliens franchise. We we keep busy. But uh, Elvira and Harlan, number one, coming May 22nd. Pick it up. And Seda, thank you so much for being on the show. Send our love to Joanne for letting us borrow you for an afternoon. And uh, we'll see you on thank the you next so episode. Take it easy, guys. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on the Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.